Hey, this is Big Rev. Thanks for tuning in to Masterclass Theology, a weekly podcast where we study books of the Bible a verse at a time and apply it to our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's rock. Thank you. Welcome to Masterclass Theology. I am Big Rev. And I'm Professor D. And I'm Crockpot. We are in session 10, finally to session 10 of our series in Isaiah. And this has been a great series, hasn't it been, guys? It sure has. That's awesome. I, I, I run into people who either have listened to the podcast, who are, who are, who have attended these live teachings, and they are just, they are just so excited. Isaiah is a book that they have, everyone agrees it is so important, and everyone is, oh, wow, we should know about this, but not a lot of people know about Isaiah. So as we've been going through these chapters, it's like our eyes have been open to a lot of different things, and it's been really good, really reassuring to go through these things. And I look forward to how we land the plane tonight. But we are in Isaiah 65. This is session 10 out of 10. Let me open with a brief word of prayer. Then we will journey forth. God, thank you so much for this journey. Thank you for being the, the just the basis of our hope. And you are the one the, the, in whom we can hope. And you form that hope and you give us that hope. And, and that sets us apart in life, God. We can turn to you. We can depend upon you. And we can trust you. And you give us hope when we otherwise would have no hope, ultimately. So we thank you, God, for this time we have tonight. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So as a few times before, we've gotten used to this interview style. We're going to interview. As for our listeners brand new, you may come back in. And if you're like me, you like to binge listen or binge watch things. So go ahead and enjoy tonight. But you can go back and listen to episodes one to nine. They're all on your podcast stream. But yeah, so we're going to have an interview tonight as the way that'll work is I will read the text and then uh, one, one of us three will explain the text and we'll have some back and forth. So we begin with verses one to seven. I was ready to be sought by those who do not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who do not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, to a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me. I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into, into their lap payment for their former deeds. Wow. Crockpot, this first section belongs to you, one to seven. Wow, all mine, huh? All right. So chapter 65 comes on the heels of what might be subtitled in your English Bible, something like a English, I don't know why I specified English Bible, like I'm not reading an English Bible. I'm not over here reading uh, Hebrew manuscripts uh, for the record, uh, but your Bible might say something like a prayer for divine intervention starting in the middle of in, uh, Isaiah 63 and going all the way through chapter 64, that prayer goes. So in this prayer, Isaiah pleads with God to spare Israel from further divine judgment and restore all that has been destroyed of their physical cities and buildings, as well as their national identity. He does this by reminding God of all that he's done in Israel's behalf over the centuries, reading off his resume, if you will. Yes, Israel has failed morally 
you know, Isaiah admits, but we're still your people. God, Israel is still your holy place. So don't forsake us now. This is, this is Isaiah's pitch. And it's a humble one because we know he knows how truly, really how truly how little Israel deserves any kind of beneficial intervention from God. But now we turn to chapter 65 and this is God's response to that prayer. And he says, I'll kind of skip to like verse three, these people, he says, continually and blatantly offend me as they, and he lists a series of kind of um, uh, weird sounding charges, but what he's, what he's really getting at is um, he's referring to their meaningless man-made religious practices, their burning incense, their divination and necromancy, their eating meat that's considered unclean, their incessant making of offerings up on the hills and mountains where they've erected these shrines and altars according to not God's standards of what's holy, but their own standards of what's holy. False religion in a nutshell. The same story is in Isaiah 1. And God is hurt by it. His heart is hurt by it. Heard how? When, what does that mean for Israel? Well, in Isaiah 64, Isaiah appealed to Israel's ancestors, um, asking God to remember how they did. You know, they worshiped you properly, so save us for their sake. And God's answer basically is no. And actually, I'm going to answer you according to your sin and their sin. Verse six, I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together. This is the punishment that Israel deserves to be held accountable, not only for their sins, not only the sins of their generation, but of the previous ones as well. Why? Because they forsook the Lord, their God. He was waiting for them to come to him and they rejected him. Verse two, I spread out my hands all day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good and follow their own devices. They're absorbed in their own desires and they've contrived all these religious practices and are indifferent that God is calling them. Think about that phrase, indifference to God. At the end of the day, that's the crux of Israel's guilt, not just in the book of Isaiah, but throughout their entire history. Um, in Luke, you'll see Jesus lamenting as he's looking out over the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, city that kills the prophets. I would have gathered you to myself time and time again, but you were not willing. This is the state that God's people are in, his chosen people. It's the condition of the divine human relationship too. He is willing, but we are not. And the answer to that tragic situation after generations of failure to seek God and respond to his call is where we're left in Isaiah 65 verse seven with the announcement that God will repay that failure, repay with repay the current generation for their, their failure and those who have walked and failed before them. It's really good stuff, Crockpot. You know, my question to you, you know, and one of the things that we've, 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 uh, we've seen a lot in this book of Isaiah is just a lot of stuff that as New Testament readers were like, hey, I read that. I read mm -hmm. that. And, mm -hmm. you know, so my question to you comes from, uh, you, know, it, you know, first the opening verse in this particular chapter. So it relates to Romans 10, 20, where Paul writes, he actually quotes this portion of scripture that we just read. And yeah. honestly, Outside of Paul's commentary on, on, on this, and just a, a natural reading and pretending I, I have no knowledge of anything else, just kind of going with the flow, pretending like I'm I'm uh, Joe Schmo walking into it and reading, you know, mm -hmm. the New Testament. I, I would have 
you know, reading this passage, I would not have thought that what, what the New Testament had said, you know, I would have thought that this was written about Israel in her sinfulness, especially like you said, in light of chapter 63 onward, that this was written to Israel in her sinfulness. With the original readers, and for that matter, Jews of, of generations since have understood this to be, or should they understand this to be Gentile nations? Or, or was that some deliberate double application or something on God's part? Mm. Uh, that's a great question, Nick. I'm glad you asked too, because I totally glossed over that first verse there. Let me just read it again. This is what Paul is quoting. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And Paul uses it for the Gentiles in Romans. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So you clearly see his interpretation of that. I think at the very least, it would have sounded odd to the original Jewish listener, huh? God revealing himself to nations that don't know him. Mm. I mean, even the, even the most informed of them, the well-read ones, you know, would, would recall, well, God did call Rahab into the family of Israel, right? Ruth, you know, some non-Israelites got to be brought into the family, but yeah. whole nations, goys. And yet this is, this is clearly Paul's interpretation of that passage. God was so full of mercy and love that he was willing to receive even those nations who were not his own special chosen people. All the while they, the chosen ones, Israel, are turning their noses up at him. It's no wonder Paul goes on to say that, that God would use the Gentiles to make obstinate Israel jealous, right? Mm -hmm. Jealous of what they're missing out on. But yeah, um, I think plenty of a little bit of ambiguity there, for sure. Um, it's not entirely clear just in Isaiah that that's what he's referring to. Um, and what, you know, what little clarity we have on that matter is thanks to Paul's interpretation, which obviously the original reader didn't have. Yeah, thanks, John. Uh, just looking at this list, uh, I, I appreciate Mick and, and, and John, your conversation there kind of giving us a nice context to interpret this. And and yes, as because of the, the doctrine of inspiration, if that that was Paul's argument, then that is the right argument. Exactly. Yeah, I Holy trust Spirit, Paul's hermeneutics. The Holy, Spirit, the Holy Spirit's driving that train. <laughs> but yes, uh, with that in mind, uh, that is, in these seven verses, there seem to be, you know, God is speaking very forcefully. So there yeah. seem to be some non-negotiable things here. If you were to pick maybe, you know, two or three things, Crockpot, that you know, we're, we're kind of painting with a big paintbrush now. If there's things that are just non-negotiable to God, and do you see anything that stands out? in these seven verses? Mm, I guess I'd say idol worship, first and foremost, which it's really easy to think is not a modern problem. Um, you know, the kind of crafting of your own weird religion and um, building these these high places. This is, this is a common phrase in the Old Testament. And you wonder like, what's, what's the deal with these high places? What's wrong with high, high places, you know? Well, is the the um, unfaithful Israelites would go to literally high places and and erect altars and shrines and stuff where they would make um, they would make where they would do pagan religious practices basically because that's where they thought they were closest to the gods that they were worshiping, you know. And Psalm forty, that's why Psalm forty six says, "God is our high place." He is actually our, our refuge and strength and our high place because he's the one that we need to, um, we, we, we've replaced our idea of proper worship with these 
ultimately totally inverted and, and inward focused idols. And that's, that's what idolatry is. And that's why it's so important to remember that it is a problem today. It's, in, it's, it's, it's an immortal problem. Um, idolatry is really just it's self-worship at the end of the day, at the end of the day, because it's just your own expression of what you think is worth worshiping. Yeah, my, my dear friend, I, I have a friend who is, he's, he's just turned 80 years old. He loves to toss this, this chapter at me and he used to say, because he, he now, and he has for most of his adult life, though he is a Gentile Christian, he, he eats according to the Levitical code. And so he, he eats kosher. And so he tosses, he tosses at me the, the, those who eat pig's flesh uh, from, mm. from the verses there. Yeah. And so it's, that would be a non-negotiable for him. Sure. But <laughs> thankfully we have, you know, the gospels and we have, especially Mark's citation that by, by, by this, Jesus proclaimed all foods clean or something like that. So Thanks we have, God. Yeah. So, so we're, we're very grateful for the <laughs> that new one is now, no, now negotiable. Uh, yeah. mercy. I, I just keep going back to Galatians three on this matter. Right, right. Amen. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you, guys. That, that was great. Great opening. Yeah. section. That, that was a hard hitting opening section, but that was a great one. Uh, so we can we continue with eight to 12. Thus says the Lord, as the, the new wine is found in the cluster and they say, do not destroy it for there is a blessing in it. So I will do for my servants sake and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah possess, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks, and the valley of Akor a place for herds to lie down. For my people who have sought me, but you forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune, and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny. I will destine you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes, and chose what I did not delight in. Mick, 8 to 12 belong to you. All right. Well, here it goes. You know, in, in the in the section of previous verses, you know, before 8 through 12, we just talked about how God pronounced judgment for Israel's rejection of him, basically. And, and they were being hypocrites. As John pointed out, they were going through the motions of worship, the idol worship of chapter one, but and, and their hearts weren't into it. Um, it was just empty ritualism. And, and, and God's just not a fan of that. In verse five, for instance, They'd be like, you know, keep to yourself. I, I, I'm too holy for you. Man, you know, what, what kind of phony piety? Talk about self-delusional. And it's no wonder that God was disgusted. It's insulting to him. Had the matter ended in verses one through seven, Joel, this is where Crispy Critters comes in. There would be no hope for Israel. But <laughs> thankfully, the matter doesn't end there. And God has some additional things to say in the following verses. In verse 8, God is essentially saying that while Israel on a whole deserves his wrath, judgment, God is not going to destroy all of Israel. Like in the Garden of Eden, when God did not destroy Adam and Eve. Like in the days of Noah, when God preserved him and his family, God does, did not destroy everyone. So this concept is not new, that God doesn't destroy everything, that doesn't destroy everyone. God is, is about saving, salvaging, and redeeming. When, when the prophet Elijah was discouraged, you know, God took him on the side and encouraged him by telling him that he, God, had actually preserved a group of faithful Israelites whom we know as the remnant for himself. Right. 
God has always had a chosen remnant. Okay, and that, that's, that's his MO in verse 9. God makes it clear that A, he has chosen, always a chosen, or a remnant to save, and B, that he has a plan that cannot be thwarted. And it's always a plan A, it's never a contingency plan, and it's never a plan B. This plan for his chosen people, and I have to stress that, includes, and in this, in this particular case, in context, the, the nation of Israel includes the land that he had promised to them. The fact that God is always safeguarding his chosen people should be a source of, of encouragement for all of us who, who, who know that we are his chosen people as well, whether you're Israel or the church. And, and that, that even when, when it looks like all, and I mean, what is our series about if not hope? When it looks like that all hope is lost, it really isn't. You know, and, uh, there's that part there in, in the in the, in the passages from Sharon to the Valley of Acre. This is basically saying this is a, a fancy way of saying from from all the way west to all the way east. In other words, like Crockpot pointed out in, in a previous lesson, when God uses that kind of pictor, pictorial language, He means the whole chimichanga, everything. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, all of it. it. It's yours because I, not I, meaning God. Am giving it to you. That's why, not because you deserve it, but because I am giving it to you. To be clear, God's chosen people are distinguished by the fact that they seek Him out. Not, okay, it wasn't that they they sought Him out because it's because God chose them. They, they they sought Him out. You know, and this is how you recognize Him. You know, like a like like a like sheep looking for the voice of the of the shepherd calling them. They recognize the voice of the shepherd because they are His and they belong to Him. Like God put it in verse ten, my people. Who have sought me in verse 11 god once again addresses the hypocrites described as, as those who forsake that is anybody that rejects god and and god's way of doing things and and how is their rejection of god made manifest well they they place their trust in other things that are not god himself for instance they 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 emphasize rituals rather than god in our english bibles these false gods are before uh, that they're talking about here in particularly are referred to as fortune and destiny. Bottom line, they're not trusting nor seeking God. Um, so, so what is their outcome? Verse 12, the word slaughter. They're going to be judged severely by God. These are people who refuse God's call to repentance and continue doing things in ways that are diametrically opposed to, to God's revealed will. These are people who choose to just not listen to God. And, and, and that applies even to people today. Yeah, Professor D, good job. You, you, you answered the question I was going to ask. So let me just focus on question 12 here. You know, God seems to make a big deal about when I, when I called, you do not answer. When I spoke, you do not listen. But you did do what was evil in my eyes and that you did choose what I did not delight in. And so how does God, our reaction to God, how important, I mean, that seems to be pretty important to God. How important is that to God? How we react to, to him and how we live this life uh, responding to his actions and, and his response and his the things that he does well I mean, there are only really two responses in life you're either going to uh you're going to either listen to god or you're not and that's really all it comes down to so you know they have chosen not to follow god and in this they this is how they demonstrate that they don't belong to god and, and by the contrary, the remnant who have chosen, 
to respond to God. This is how it shows that they were chosen by God. Mm. Yeah, that's that, that's that's really good. I think it's really good for our listeners to understand yeah. is that God is at work. And many times we, we, we have people in our life that we know that, that need God and we pray for God to be at work in their life. And yeah. we never know how God is at work, but we know that God does work and, and, and he's accomplishing his plan. And here, these are people for whatever reason, they did not respond in a way that God approved of. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's consequences for them. It's just the way it is. But we take heart the fact that God's at work. Yeah. Amen. Really. Mick, do you, do you have any thoughts on the significance of, of possession here? Like, I guess I'm just wondering why, why is it necessary for God to give his chosen people something that will be theirs, as in the land? We're talking about the land here. You will yeah, possess you know, the land rather than just like, you can live in my land. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, um, that that's a very interesting question. And I mean, a lot of it, and I, and I just keep thinking back that one of the things that I think is lost on a lot of us as New Testament readers is that there are various covenants in, in the Old Testament. Right. There are various pacts that God has made. And pretty much they're unconditional ones with the exception of the Sinai covenant. You right. know, so the covenant that he made to Abraham, which is the one that God is honoring, has to do with them taking possession of the land and, and, and keeping it because it's what God has given them. Mm-hmm. The Sinai one, you know, is the only one that's conditional right but it's also part of god's grand design and story and he was conditionally like you know you guys you know i'm I'm, I'm gonna kick you guys out but the thing is that it never canceled the the earlier one that he made the the abrahamic covenant so there's something there that that's why the the possession of the land especially for the israelites is such an important thing because there's just no getting around it you know, and, and it's just something that they have. They it, it it is the promise that God made, and God, God's going to keep His word. It has to do more totally. with God's faithfulness than any anything else. I think it also like there. There's so much undeserved dignity in that. Like mm. this land will be yours. You will yeah. not. It's not. It's not just that I am ordaining that you're allowed to live on this land. It's my gift to you. You, you know, like it's mm-hmm. well, it is His gift, but it's it's theirs it becomes theirs and it's like that that's a little reflection when you become owners of that land now you're like little little gods in a way and like as long as you are stewarding that land in a godly way then that's that's a beautiful thing yeah and and i think it highlights the, the the whole narrative of god being sovereign too though totally yeah it's his to give yeah and and he's the kind of god who would allow somebody else to possess it yeah yeah. Well, this is good stuff, guys. We continue to 13 to 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servant shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servant shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse. And the Lord God will put you to death, but his servants he will call by another name, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. Well, I'll take this brief section, guys. 
this this is there's like this there's 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 two peoples and two paths here and what one one people is that he's calling his servants which you know could tie back to the exodus narrative which you know let my people go pharaoh so that they may they may serve they may worship and serve that that same verb in the hebrew these are god's servants so this is not the suffering servant but these are this is this is god's chosen people his chosen his servants he's got a path for them he's got a plan for them and then he's got a path and plan for everyone who's not them and that's very sobering in this kind of tolerant world we live in where we want to picture god as very just all inclusive like god's this great spiritual buffet where you pay your price and you get to eat anything you want whatever you choose you choose and no, it's, it's, it's a very, very sobering reality that God has chosen and those who God has not chosen, they have a different outcome. And even if you want to define who those chosen people are, well, well they're, they're with the Messiah, whoever they are. We learned that last week. But it's just a very sobering reality that God has chosen to give saving grace to some, and he's chosen not to give it to others because here he has some that are his servants and some that are not. And there are blessings that come for those people that are his. And there are, well, shall we say the opposite of blessing? They're curses or just not blessings. The outcome isn't that great. In fact, it's horrible for those who are not his servants. And so kind of like I used to boil down the book of Revelation, God's team is going to win to get on God's team. Well, if you're on God's team, it's a great place to be here. So we just, we see here two peoples and two outcomes. Thanks, Joel. You know, um, I think that was such a great explanation that my question is going to be a little bit different. You know, since your section actually starts off with this thought, I, I wanted kind of to have you play around with it a little bit. You know, um, for the sake of our listeners, would you please remind us all what it means for God to forget things? Oh, yeah, the closing verse, the former troubles are forgotten or hidden from my eyes. Yeah, and that... And, and listeners, that, that, that sounds like an easy question. That's actually a very theologically profound question Professor D just, just dumped on our laps. Because when you consider, most people understand God's omnipotent, God's all-powerful, God is, you know, omnipresent kind of thing. God is not, you know, bound by, you know, the things that we're bound by as kind of temporal creatures. But one of the things people also understand about God is he's omniscient, is he's all-knowing. And so how does an omniscient one forget? Is this kind of like one of those things where, uh, the, the old kind of, you know, bar room question, can God create a rock big enough that he can't lift? Hmm. You know, it's, it's almost one of those things. And it's really hard to say God can't do something unless it's a logical contradiction. Like God can't be truth and not truth or right. AKA an absurdity. Yeah. Right. Or, or, or where scripture clearly places a limitation on God, which would be God limiting himself for our understanding. Like God cannot lie. So can God forget? Uh, so what, what brought me comfort <laughs> is the more I thought about this, uh, the, the more my mind kept being, kept, kept being taken back to, uh, to, to actually another Old Testament book in first, it's first Samuel and it's chapter one. And uh, Samuel's you know, mother uh, who is, is praying, for, uh, praying for a child and she's in, she's in a, you know, a, a, a marriage with, 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 with her with another, another woman in the, in the house and her husband's married to two and one seems to be very fertile and she can't seem to conceive. And so she prays to the Lord. This is 1 Samuel 1 and this is uh, verse 11. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, 
but will give your servant a son that I will give him to the Lord all of his days. So, so Hannah seems to wrestle with the idea of she's praying for God to remember her and not to forget. And then later on, when God answers her prayer, it says, and the Lord remembered her. So an omniscient God, a God who is, is all-knowing, a God who understands everything at all times and in all ways, we wonder, can he forget? Well, how would that God also remember? Wouldn't that God always know? And so I think this verse, when we ponder God saying I'm not I, that these things are going to be forgotten. We're we're worried, we're we're wondering about theologically, and really, this is written for the reader here, because Hannah didn't change God by her prayer. She prayed that God would remember her, but that prayer was in her terms for her sake, and that God would not forget her in her terms for her sake. So that's how she understood God. God wasn't going to remember or forget anything about her. God was going to act as He sovereignly has chosen to act. With that said, God remembered her. God did not forget her. There was a special blessing for Hannah. So in our text here today, God is saying whether God can forget God, that's, that's missing the point. The point here is, is that God, for the sake of his people, for the sake of his remnant, his elect, his chosen, these things that used to define them, their sin, their troubles, these very things, they're not going to be in the way anymore. God is going to put them behind. God is going to make us so that they are not, you know, and, and it speaks to all of us, all of us who, who claim Christ as our Savior. Without Jesus, the last chapter of each of our books is sin. The wages of sin is death. We've earned that. And on the books is that death we've earned. But by God's grace and in God's mercy, the last chapter of our stories is now forgiveness and a, rec and a restoration. Hmm. Does that mean that God forgot my sin? Well, it, for my sake, sure. For God's sake, we can't say that. But for, but for his sake and her prayer, for our sake as God's chosen, yeah, God's not going to place whatever those troubles are not going to be at the forefront anymore. They're going to be back, and they're not going to be the issue anymore. That's what God is promising, which would have given tremendous hope. It gives me hope. It should give you hope as well. So that's how, that, that, that is my not so long, but a little bit long answer to your short question, Big. Believe me, my preparation in my mind, it was it was acres long. But but yeah, that's, there you go. <laughs> And thank you for that answer. <laughs> if we can get the acres long version at uh, at a, a masterclass theology, that, that's in the blue, that's in the Blu-ray DVD, right? Deleted scenes, deleted scenes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Joel, that's a that's a really really helpful way to explain this this verse. It's it's a hard one. Yeah, it's it's hard to wrap our brains around. That's a really helpful way. To, it's important to remember that biblical authors, especially I think Old Testament authors, even more so. We're less concerned with giving us this clinical definition of exactly who God is and all of his attributes than they were with painting a portrait of God's character in ways that we just really, really can come to terms with his accessibility and his, his relationality. So nice. Well done. All right. Well, thank you guys. We are, um, we're going to, we're going to close, uh, we're going to close our section here, 17 to 25, uh, with just slightly different format. I will, I will read this as usual, and then we'll hear individually from, first from Crockbot and then from Professor D. So 17 to 25, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy 
and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be, uh, shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessing of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. Mm. While they are still yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Wow. So we'll start with, so we're going to have from the standpoint of God's people, how do we understand these verses? And then from the standpoint of God. So we'll start with you, John, from the standpoint of God's people. Yeah, if I'm hearing this from the perspective of a post-exile Jew, I think two main things are going through my head. Number one, over the last several decades, my people have taken a beating, right? We've been subjected to political and military conquest by two superpowers, the second of whom destroyed many of our cities, including the capital where the palace was ransacked and the temple of God, our, our sacred place of worship and the seat of our national identity was destroyed. Then those people who did all that carried many of us off back to this foreign land we'd never known where we were forced into the service of an evil king and to worship gods we don't know. And now we're being told that God is essentially going to recreate the world in a way that preserves us, his people, as well as our precious home in way, in a far better way than it ever was before. It'll be, it'll be the world as it was intended to be. And imagine, I, I imagine that one of my questions would be finally what took so long why did it take so much suffering and loss on behalf of my people and why did so many other evil nations and people prosper at our expense before god would finally make good on his ancient promises to us that mick was just talking about okay so that's that's number one but then here's here's the second thing and i think this kind of flows out of that line of thinking so i'd remember all of that. And then I remember all that me and my people did to hurt God, all the shameful centuries of indifference to God and outright disdain for him and his commandments, all the second chances he gave us and all the prophets he sent warning us to turn back to God or be destroyed by our enemies. And I'd probably ask, <laughs> yeah, it, it, took, it took a long time and I wish it came sooner, but really what did we do to deserve this kind of mercy? Answer, absolutely nothing. And that's the whole point. This is God's painful mercy on display for the whole world. So it's an overwhelmingly beautiful promise that we have here, right? But it's a little bit bitter too, because number one, it reminds the people of God of all the suffering they had to endure first. And number two, it convicts them of all the ways that they don't deserve it. But that's not why ultimately God does it. When he recreates this ideal Israel, there will be no more room to feel grief or pain or conviction or guilt or regret. So he, he does it ultimately so that his love and glory can be seen and adored and worshiped without obstruction by everyone. It's great, John. Yeah. 
And, you know, I'm glad Joel gave you that particular standpoint because it makes mine a little bit easier, you know, because yeah. you have to exercise <laughs> the restraint. Like, I got to pretend I don't know what the New Testament says. Exactly. I don't have to. I get to be God's standpoint. So that kind of helps I'm me out. God. <laughs> so I'm going to have at it. So I mean, no, again, forgetting, I, no forgetting. No forgetting. No right. forgetting. Not this time. Right. So from the standpoint <laughs> of God, the new heavens and new earth. Wow. You know, God says that former things shall not be remembered. And, and this is not because of from some cosmic degenerative disorder afflicting God, you know, uh, as Joel very well explained. No, this is because of, of and, 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 you know, in actually, I think this is basically because of God's willful choice. Basically, he puts it in the in a positive. All, all things old will be forgotten. It, it, basically, to put it a positive twist on basically saying because of God's willful choice, he is not going to recall sins. There will be no double indemnity, so to speak, going on here. You know, uh, the reason they don't need to be remembered is because he will have dealt with them in the suffering servant that we talked mm. about earlier, the man of sorrows, the Messiah, way back in chapter 53. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. He, he was healed because of his, we are healed because of his wounds. The Lord has laid all the iniquity of us all on him. And so that, that that is done. To be clear, I believe this section to be the section that we're covering right now, these last couple of verses, I believe this to be um, primarily Jesus' millennial kingdom, not necessarily the, the eternal kingdom, although that is what is in sight here in the opening verse in 17. I think he's giving kind of like one of the things is that time passages in in, in in the in in these prophetic books is not clear for instance like we saw this in in, in the last time when we, we did chapter 61 you know jesus stops short of the end before he continues reading there's a time thing i think sometimes that happens with, with a lot of these prophecies here so what he says in verse 17 he's talking about the eternal kingdom the once and for all you know but of course i have the new testament perspective so i know what what happens in revelation after the millennial kingdom so verses 18 on focus on an age where God fulfills earthly promises God made to the nation of Israel. God is nothing if not a God of his word. Uh, his word is his bond. And I believe that these are the events that take place after the battle of Armageddon, what, what follows in, in, in verses 18 onward. God is still setting the stage for the new creation, the, the eternal kingdom during the millennial reign, uh, with Jesus ruling from Jerusalem. And Jerusalem will be at the forefront of the world stage. She will be at the forefront of culture. She will she will finally be that great, great empire that God had destined her to be. The nations are going to take their cues from Israel. You know, whatever is going on in the cultural, Israel is going to set it out. You know, Israel is going to be at the forefront. You know, whatever Israel is doing, everybody's going to copy. Oh, what is Israel wearing? They're going to look at Israel to see what, what the latest fashion is, everything that's going to be in vogue, Israel's going to be that. And it all has to do, and it all has to do because of who's sitting on that throne. And it's that Messiah, the King, King Jesus. Verse 20 is, um, is, is, gives me another reason why I understand this to be the millennial kingdom and that it's a precursor to the eternal kingdom. Uh, people still die here. It says that people will live much longer but there will still be people dying in verse 23 during this age, people are still being born. Interesting. Well, I, I was taking into account uh, Jesus's discussion in Matthew 20, 22 verses 23 to, to 28. If there are no marriages in heaven, AKA the eternal kingdom, 
there there will be no birthing one of the the main reasons for marriage in the first place uh procreation you know so during this age there there will still be sinners on the scene and they will still die air quotes here you know young at 100 years of age that's going to be young in during this wonderful period of history that's the new young you see i'm telling you israel's at the forefront of what 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 is said so young is going to die at 100 years old and you're going to say wow he died so young uh you know but going back to verse one uh, that's in verse 20 but this is going to be a wonderful time unlike any before it and i think this is what and i would imagine that from the descriptions here that it will be very it will actually almost seem like it's the eternal kingdom except for the fact that it's still yet to come and again we get a lot of the clues about this in revelation where it talks about a millennial kingdom and then a follow-up kingdom after that but going back to verses 18 and 19 from god's perspective God's going to be glad and rejoice in Jerusalem, you know, in Israel, because she will finally be what God wanted her to be since Genesis chapter 12, that great nation and the blessing and a blessing to all. And with that, I, I pass it on. Mm, that's so good, Nick. Well done, guys. This, this, this is the section that, you know, the, that everyone's looking forward to, and they, they, they patiently waited through our, our theological journey uh, to get here to these, uh, to the 17 to 25, because this is the, the, the main, the main hope, there's been hope all throughout this chapter. And, but, so uh, let me close with uh, some closing hope just from Isaiah 65. And then since, since this is ending our, our, our series in Isaiah, we'll, we will all take a, a take a moment to, to share a, a, a kind of a final thought each or a favorite moment. Uh, so just from Isaiah 65, we, we have an idea there's newness and, the basic idea of hope there's a new heavens and new earth but before that there's going to be a new a new or a renewed relationship for god between god and his people the former things aren't going to be what is defining them now it's going to be something new that is defined by god and we get this idea also is is it like in romans romans is it is a romans 8 where creation is in bondage and creation is groaning and they're 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 looking forward to to one day not having the decay and God is, is not only going to provide a future for his people, but God is one day going to set creation itself free. This very creation that God at one time created, he's going to renew. And there's going to be a new creation, as it were. And so we, we, we get this idea uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 15 of, of one of the things we look forward to as Christians is one day after we resurrect, we will have uh, resurrection bodies. And these bodies won't decay anymore. Well, it's as if God's giving that to the things he created before he created us, the heavens and the earth. And the things he literally spoke into creation, God's now going to speak something else. And there's going to be a new creation. And there's going to be a great liberation from that bondage that we're going to, that the, the, the creation itself is going to see. And then we ourselves will see as part of a new relationship with God and with, with bodies that, that they won't decay either. And so... This also is a very tangential hope. I, I, one person once asked me, uh, will, will, my, will my animal be in heaven, my dog or my cat? And, and, and we honestly don't know the answer to that question. The Bible doesn't say, but we do know one thing. So any animal, any, any, any of our listeners with pets, that at one point God created uh, the heavens and the earth and he pronounced that creation good. And one day, thanks to Isaiah 65 and thanks to Revelation you know, 20 and 21, God's going to create a new heavens and a new earth, and it will also be good. So I don't know the answer to the animal question, but at one point, 
uh, God's creation is paramount here and God's sovereignty over his creation and God, God is at work here. What a great hope we have for those of us who belong to, to belong to Jesus, for those of us who groan now, for those of us who struggle now, we have something great to look forward to. And what we look forward to, in a sense, begins now. That hope is what we get to hold on to now, even though it's directed at the future. What a great time in Isaiah 65. What a great ending to this series. And what I wanted to do before, before, we, get to, uh, before we get to our final series thoughts is I wanted to give a brief recap, one to 10, of all 10 sessions, one line each. It's not going to take a long time. Of all 10 of our hopes. And so maybe one of those grabs a hold of you guys that you, you planned on, but I know one grabbed a hold of me is my favorite. So from session one, from chapter one, we learned that our sins are one day going to be dealt with, though we were they're like crimson, they'll be white as snow. From session two, chapter seven, we got the great hope promised of Emmanuel. From session three, which is chapter nine, a son will be given who will rule, again, linked to the Messiah. From session four, that's chapter 11, there's going to be a future kingdom this future kingdom, and we had we had we had moments of that of that chapter tonight with the uh, the lion eating straw like the ox and the wolf and the lamb. So there's going to be a future kingdom. It's going to be a kingdom of peace. From session five, from chapter thirty three of Isaiah, God is bigger than your Assyria. From session six, from chapter forty, the war will one day be over. From session seven, chapter forty three, we are formed by God as we journey through our wilderness but that forming has a purpose. From session eight, chapter 53, the majestic chapter 53, God crushed Jesus for our sins. He did not crush you. From session nine, chapter 61, there's gonna be a great reversal and a great restoration. And from today, there's gonna be a new heavens and a new earth. Those were our 10 hopes on the journey. So we'll start with you, Crockpot, a final series thought or favorite moment. All right. Well, um, bear with me. I was going to go a different direction that with, with this, but um, there's something, something that challenged me as I was reading. It was a, a trend that I see in the book of Isaiah that was kind of vexing me as we were going along. And I kind of had something click today when I was preparing for Isaiah 65. So um, I hope that this, this might be helpful to the reader too. You may have noticed as you read Isaiah, on your own that um, Israel's posture doesn't change a whole lot. They kind of go between guilty and slightly less guilty because they're sorry that they sinned and Isaiah is convicting them. Meanwhile, God's posture shifts radically throughout the book. Um, you may have noticed like from one week to the next, it's it'll be curses and judgment and punishment and anger coming from God. And then it's promises and goodness and blessing and mercy. And, and sometimes it's the full spectrum in one chapter like we saw tonight. Why is that? Well, it's because God takes the whole process of judgment and redemption upon himself. He drives all of it. That's why he can move from judgment to restoration in the same oracle. He does it all. We don't have a part in it. We tend to think of a, we tend to think of a redemptive arc as having these standard ingredients think of it like person one and person two have an agreement person two violates the agreement somehow person one is upset and rightfully so person two then has to go through this process of making things right and maybe person one even lays out some rules for how person two can fix it some expectations 
And person two rises to the occasion and meets those requirements and ask for, asks for forgiveness and person one forgives them. And now their relationship is reconciled, right? Maybe not ever back to exactly how it was before, but the relationship is adequately repaired, okay? That's usually how we think of it. Now think of how this plays out in the history of Israel's relationship with God, as told by Isaiah. God and Israel have an agreement. See Exodus through Deuteronomy for the fine print of that agreement. And throughout the Old Testament, Israel violates it time and time again. Now, in our standard human model of redemption, it, it'd be, it's up to Israel to make things right with God, right? And God would have the right to lay out his expectations for how they can do that, which he does. But here's where the biblical model of redemption diverges from the standard human one. Israel doesn't take the necessary steps to repair the relationship with God because they're too obstinate. But rather than allowing the relationship to remain in disrepair forever, God steps in and he himself satisfies his own requirements by which the relationship has to be restored. And here's the amazing part. God's character, his love and his mercy and patience are, they're such that when he does that, as far as he's concerned, here's where the forgetting comes in. Israel is as innocent as if they themselves had satisfied his every expectation and satisfied them perfectly. And now the state of that relationship isn't just okay, not back to the way it was, it's not just good enough. It's even better than it was before. It's Isaiah 65 better than it ever was before. Because this type of reconciliation isn't dependent on how well you as the offending party do or how hard you work to make it right. We can never live up to God's standards. Only God can live up to his own standards. And he knows that he actually loves people enough to act on that reality. And that's the model of redemption that we see in the book of Isaiah. And it's, it's like a proto gospel because the model of redemption that it lays out, the God-driven model where he alone does the work of judgment and redemption on behalf of mankind is the unique and stunning essence of the gospel of the suffering servant, the Isaiah 53 servant, Jesus Christ. Yeah, very good stuff, man. As you're saying that, I got a soundtrack playing in my head. It's not the talking heads, same as it ever was. It's U2's even better than the real thing. And now, there you go. It's That's like it, it gets it's so much better than than than, than what it, it seems, you know. Totally. Um, yeah, man. Oh, you know, and here's the thing about this whole series: it's all good, it's all connected, and and it builds on this grand, complete portrait, like Emmanuel, God with us. But I have, I have to, but you know, I, I have, to, if I had to, you know, I'm stranded on an island, I can't carry it all with me and I have to pick one chapter to carry as if it were a physical object, I have to go back to chapter 53, um, Isaiah 53, you know, if Jesus fulfilled the unpleasant, the difficult, the physical things in, in the most literal sense, and if he fulfilled the impossible, which was coming back from the dead, which is what we get the picture of this Messiah, this suffering servant doing, you know, if he fulfilled that literally, physically, all of which was predicted beforehand here in Isaiah, then I can know that God will make good on all the other things that are difficult to gauge. Like, mm. how do you know that God mends a broken heart? How do you measure that? You know, do you get like a, a telescope or some sort of x-ray to, to gauge that? You know, how do you gauge forgiveness of sins? Like, where do you see the where do you see like the barometer of it going down or, you know, 
uh, or, or or things of future history? How do you gauge that? Like, how do I gauge, you know, this is hope that can be banked on. This fuels my faith when I see this stuff come really have happened. Um, and, and it gets gets me over the humps of doubts that honestly, even now, you, you think, you know, Mickey, you've been a Christian most of your life, you know, you know, 40, out, uh, close to 40 out of 50 of your years, you you believe what, what, what what's, what's wrong with you? I, I don't know, man. Mm. But I tell you, you know, this is the stuff that gets me over those doubts when they do come, you know, and 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 and, and this is where, where chapter 53, you know, like, it's like, man, when I read about it and I read the stories of how people have come to Christ when they realize that that this is what Jesus did, not to mention the actual things that he did there where he did forgive my sins. I know that my sins are forgiven because Jesus rose from the dead. I have no other way of knowing that outside of Jesus doing what he did. How do I know that all that abuse that he took on Calvary led to me being forgiven past, present and future sins because of the reality of Jesus being resurrected? The fact that Jesus did all that and he fulfilled it hundreds of years before, you know, hundreds of years. This is an unpleasant prophecy. I mean, think about who would want to be Jesus at this point other than the real Jesus. I mean, I wouldn't have wanted to be the guy. Whoa, whoa, whoa. This these whips, this abuse, this hatred, this rejection. I don't want that. Yet Jesus took it all on him. I mean, and when I think about that and it's, it's only because of that. You know, when, when God asked me, okay, why should I let you through? I go, well, the answer is you shouldn't, but, but Jesus, I'm with Jesus. That's really it. Yep. You know, I am with Jesus. You know, that guy from, from Isaiah 53, that's the only reason I could walk in there. Cause it says that by his, his, his stripes, we were healed. Our iniquities have been dealt with. That's the only reason I get to, to walk, you know, into it with my, with my, with in spite of the fact that I've muddied my feet so badly, it's only because of Jesus. And, and when, when I think about that, man, it's like, wow, you know, God with us. Amen. But the real gauge of that for me is the fact that Jesus did what he did. And it's a, it's a proven historical fact. I mean, it it, it is so real, even it's real outside of the Bible, my friends. I mean, it is truth. If you want to look, there's a great book out there called Jesus Skeptic by John Dickerson that that where he really if you really are a person that these are sticking points and i i really recommend you check it out you see that there's evidence of, of all the well i'm 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 babbling at this point but 53 that's my my sticking point I, i'm sticking to it joel yeah i mean crockpot and professor d just just gave us a master class just summary summarizing the book of isaiah so there's not much i can or should add to that i'll just say briefly um, we, we studied hope in Isaiah. We, we traced the theme of hope. And what I hope, oh listener, you've understood from this journey, and I, and I would hope that the nation of Judah picked up on this as Isaiah gave it to them each week, is that my hope is, is centered in God. Amen. My hope is not centered in me. And anything I can do is just, is just like a filthy rag. It's just never going to come. It's never going to accomplish what I needed to accomplish. So my hope is centered in God and not me. And so it's built upon two basic principles, two basic theological principles. God is God. And that's not just a tautology. That's just God. God is, God is the one that handles his business. So it, since God is God, I trust him. Ultimately, God's plan is going to work out because God is God. My hope is centered in God. And second of all, God is not only God, but God is good. And so I'm thankful. 
even though I'm going through really hard times, and Judah went through some very, very hard times, but God gave Judah some promises, even in the midst of those hard times. God promised to be with them, even in the midst of impossibly hard times. God is God, and I trust him. Ultimately, his plan is going to work out, and God is good. I'm thankful for him. His plan is ultimately going to end in my good. And with those two pieces of self-talk, with those two pieces of, 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 that I carry with me as carry-on luggage as I, as I journey through this time, they keep me going. God is both God and God is good. My hope is centered in God. It's not centered in me. What a journey we've had in the book of Isaiah in master, for Masterclass Theology. I am Big Rev. I'm Professor D. And I'm Crockpot. Thank you for joining us for all these 10 sessions. And we look forward to what's coming in the future. God bless you and have a good night. Amen. This has been Masterclass Theology. I pray you've been challenged and encouraged during today's episode. And I hope you'll continue to join us as we journey through the Bible. God bless.